Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 193 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Criminal Trials episode of the SLS Cast, or at least the Russian Criminal Trials episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out, back in 1877 and 1878, there were a series of criminal trials held in Russia under the rule of Tsar Alexander II. They were called... The trial of the 193. And um, it turned out really well for most of them. A lot of them got acquitted. They were students who were protesting. Uh, turns out that even 140-something years ago, students protested. That's just something that has been and always will be. What do you know? And with that wonderful little bit of historical Russian protest-slash-trial knowledge, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! And I am very tired. Me too, dude. Seriously, I'm fucking zapped. What, what's your excuse? I thought it was allergies again. I had been besieged by allergies about a month or so back, mm-hmm. as you as you may or may not remember. And I was getting a little twinge in the back of the throat and everything last week. And I was like, man, how can I get the allergies again? This is ridiculous. And then I found out that one of my kids somehow managed to catch a cold. And I'm like, ah, fuck. So I've been trying to fight that off. And I've been pretty successful overall. Um, I still, I would probably say I'm at about 80 to 85% there do you have Um, like a gauge like installed on your person so you can see how well your health is doing no no i I would not want to see the results of that have you looked at me i mean anyway um (laughs) yeah i got i I got sick too you did i did yeah back in the cockles of my throat where the tonsils are i think uh, i get like the the tonsil sores or the tonsil you know, cockable whatever it's called i don't know what it's called yeah it's no fun man even still so fighting off that and then had a really busy weekend uh had uh, a belated birthday party for myself on saturday my wife's birthday was this weekend as well and she had a big slumber party thing so i found myself wandering around on friday night <laughs> the streets <laughs> of spring texas that's right Be- well I watch mean, out because- she wanted to have a slumber party, a girls-only slumber party, and so she did. She invited a whole bunch of her teacher friends and all this crap, and she's like, and you need to find somewhere to go. And I'm like, well, what the shit? So I ended up going over to a buddy of mine's house. I literally hadn't seen him for like a year, so we had quite a nice time drinking and having steaks and all this wonderful stuff, but by the time... I said goodbye there, it was still too early. I mean, it was only like 12.30 in the morning, and I was like, well... I'll I don't want to come home too early. So I ended up bombing around. Some weird crap happened at work, and I got to check out a broken glass door and went to IHOP for a little bit. Eventually got there, got home around 3. And then I had my party on Saturday and then tried to recover yesterday, but had other stuff I had to do, and I'm just tired. Had to take the kids to the doctor today just for the regular checkup stuff, and <sighs> I'm just tired. Just tired, dude. Sounds like an excellent way to spend a summer weekend. 
Yes, yes. One Sick. of the last summer weekends I have before school starts again. Well, I got sick at Disneyland, nice. one of the greatest places on earth to uh, realize that you're coming down with something. And that's really all I got to say about that. Well, then I guess, how about we do some mail? What do you say? <laughs> Bring in the old mail pouch. Uh, yes. The old tickling of the sack. What's the right. mailman's name? We need we need an SLS cast mailman name. Hmm. How about Herb Carl? Oh, or Irv? Did you say Irv? Irv? I said Herb, but Irv 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 works. Ooh, Is it Irv, Irv with an E or U? Hmm. Irv. 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 How about how about how about with a U? This way, it, whenever should we ever type it, people might not might not know it's Irv, and they might try and say Yerv. And that'll be pretty funny. <laughs> it sounds like a bone, like in the genital area or something like that. I've got urvitis. What? <laughs> My yerv is all messed up. It's no, no. The correct, the correct pronunciation is irv. You have irvitis. Oh, all right. Uh, so irv, irv sends us some mail. Greetings. You too can send mail. Uh, for Irv to check out with a sack and everything, to the show at slsgas.com. Uh, we have no direct emails again this week, but we do have a couple of uh, Twitter followers to mention. And so, of course, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that by following us at the SLSCast. And it looks like, once again, our Pottern family continues to grow. We have the Naked Porch podcast at the Naked Porch. And everyone has a podcast, which is at EHAP podcast i feel like they missed the opportunity to just do eha podcast because everyone has a podcast i feel like they messed that up because they went with at ehap podcast which is weird so it's and i can hear podcast them podcast. unfollowing the sls cast right now because matt insulted them <laughs> i'm just saying it feels like a missed opportunity Anyways, are they babies are they baby pod did they just start maybe just i don't they're I, well, apparently this was voted Canada's number one comedy podcast. Out of by Alberta. whom? By them, maybe. Or you know, Canada? by their moms, perhaps. I know that if your mom and my mom got together, they would probably vote us the best movie podcast. So maybe it's entirely possible. My, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so guys, all of you, Naked Porch, and everyone has. Thanks for the follows, guys and gals. If that is applicable to you. And that's all that's in the mail, which means now it's time for the news of the weird. Yes, this is the taco one, right? Well, I I wasn't going to say anything because of your expertise in editing. Nobody knew there was a choice. Oh, no. Yeah, this show's live. Every time you listen to the show, it's live. <laughs> that's the magic of the show. It's always live. That's We're constantly right. now- sitting in our underwear in very hot, moist rooms. That's right. Now, do you remember back in October uh, of the original series of the SLS cast, episode 8, The Curse of the Ocho? <laughs> yes. Okay, I think I figured out why that happened, because that was about uh, Octoberish or whatever that that occurred. That's the episode where we recorded it like eight times. Yes. Pretty much. And, we, and, and my buddy Kevin... Uh, 
what, what not, oh gosh, my buddy Jeremy, Kevin was his brother. <laughs> my buddy Jeremy had tried to guest on the show with us and everything, and it just totally messed up. I think I figured out why that happened because this story actually comes from uh, from October of 2011, but it's still an amazingly weird story, and it coincides with our history. So maybe this is why we had such a bad time uh, with the curse of the Ocho. Turns out. From MiamiNewTimes.com by way of Kyle Munzenreiter. Hmm. Irv Munzenheiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drunk Florida man tries to use taco as ID after his car catches fire at Taco Bell. <laughs> so I think that this man's cursed luck somehow drifted over to Jeremy uh, because he lives in Florida and that trans transponded itself through the internets and landed in our podcast scenario and caused us to mess up. But yeah, there was a guy, there is a guy, I don't know that he's dead, who found out that tacos are not recognized as legal forms of identification in the state of Florida. Uh, Matthew Faulkner found out the hard way after he passed out drunk in the drive-thru of a Jensen Beach Taco Bell and his car caught fire. Too much of that spicy hot sauce, right? That's <laughs> The fire. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, Faulkner, 30, had apparently decided to make a run for a fourth meal after downing some beers, and he somehow made it all the way to the fast food joint in his Chevy pickup, placed his order, and received his taco before falling asleep. The Taco Bell manager had to call police because Faulkner was cold at the pickup window and was out cold at the pickup window and holding up customers behind him. Clearly, this was not a victimless crime. <laughs> due to the hungry folks who had to wait so long for their late night munchies. <laughs> they were probably uh, all high anyways. They, they, than, they get a free than, show. You know? More than likely. A deputy awoke Faulkner and then asked for his ID. Faulkner said no before reaching into his bag and presenting the officer with a taco. Another deputy clarified they were asking for an ID, not a taco. Faulkner chuckled and began eating the taco. Then <laughs> deputies noticed Faulkner had fallen asleep with his foot on the accelerator while his truck was in park. The engine had caught fire and fire extinguishers were used to put it out. <clears throat> now, I'm going to let you have some fun here, Tim. Let's take a guess um, at Faulkner's blood alcohol content. Just go ahead and get, give it a shot. 1.5. 1.5, you would literally be dead. Um, <laughs> it has to be under 1. <laughs> you can do point something, but it has to be under 1. Point 0.9. Point 0.9, still dead. Okay, let's see. Was it point 0.1, point 0.2, or point 0.4? Point 0.4. No! It was no. point. Two two seven. So he wasn't that drunk. Just three times the legal limit. <laughs> so not that drunk. You're in Florida. You're just sweating out all the alcohol. That's really it. Cancels impressive. out, man. Can, I mean, because the beer, the content, the alcohol content in beer is three point two five. 
Like if you go to your grocery store and grab the Bud Light off the shelf or your Bud, you know your Bud, your Coors, your standard beers, they're gonna be like in the neighborhood of five and a quarter, maybe even five and a half. Okay, mm-hmm. but in Florida, the three point two, it's all three two beer there. Same as in Oklahoma, Oklahoma's three two. So you have to drink a fuck ton of beer just to get drunk in the first place and this guy managed to drink nearly three times the legal limit which is 0.08 for by the way 0.08 (laughs) is the legal limit for being drunk how many cases of milwaukee's best did that bastard have to chug i have no idea but he definitely he definitely took his steely tacos to the milwaukee's beast for sure anyway so that's my news of the weird Thought you would uh, get a kick out of that. Some great mental visuals. I like them. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, then I guess without further ado, what do you say we get to the real news? Sounds good. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> First up from me, just a real short and sweet one, because I've been doing a lot of talking so far. Uh, from HowardStern.com, uh, with no direct attribution other than, I guess, his show, basically. <clears throat> we find what got cut from Sausage Party to avoid an NC-17 MPAA rating. Seth Rogen tells Howard he had to shave down one of his food characters in order to get an R movie. Yes, that is... Uh, exactly what it was. But the key was, quote, we digitally shaved the pita bread's ball sack, end quote, Seth told Howard. Trimming that character's pubes down proved good enough for the MPAA, and the movie was given the R rating that Rogan wanted. Now, like I said, this was very short and sweet. Uh, sweet one. What do you think, Tim? Do you think that at this point, when you're dealing with a movie that is this raunchy and this ridiculous and is clearly animated food with balls, does it matter at that point whether or not the balls have hair on them? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what, what if what if the ball hair is more attractive than my ball hair or your ball hair? Wouldn't you feel jealous? About that pita bread's ball hair? I personally go for the Dr. Evil uh, style, which is there's nothing quite like a freshly shorn scrotum. It's rather breathtaking. I recommend you try it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how many balls do you see in the movie, though? You've seen it, and I I haven't seen it yet. To my knowledge, uh, just just the one pair. Just the pita pear. The pe- a pita pear. <laughs> a pita pear. A, a pita. Let's see. A pita pear of. A pita pear of pickled. I don't know. Peckers at this point. No. What, what, what's a hairy. What's a pee, pee hairy. You know. Word. For like. Stringy. Fuzzy. What? A fizzy? No. Pee. Mm. I don't know. 
I think we're giving this a little too much thought. <laughs> anyway, what do you got for us, sir? All right, this is going to be great to lead into this article here. TheHollyReporter.com, R2-D2 actor Kenny Baker dies at 81. Yes, the British actor played the robot character of R2-D2 in the first six Star Wars films, and his other credits include Flash Gordon and Labyrinth. The Guardian on Saturday first reported the news of Baker's death, quoting a statement from his niece who said he died after a long illness. The niece, Abigail Shield, told The Guardian of her uncle's death, saying, quote, It was expected, but it's sad nonetheless. He had a very long and fulfilled life. He brought lots of happiness to people and will be celebrating the fact that he was well-loved throughout the world. We're all proud of what he achieved in his lifetime. When he was a child, he was told that he probably wouldn't survive through puberty. Being a little person in those times, they didn't have a very good life expectancy, end quote, Shields said to the actor, who grew to three feet eight inches tall. Quote, he did extremely well in his life. He was very ill for the last few years, so we had been expecting it. He had been looked after by one of his nephews who found him on Saturday morning, end quote. S.H.I.E.L.D. explained that Baker met his wife, Eileen, after an appearance on a TV show hosted by Michael Parkinson. She wrote in saying she also was a little person and wanted to meet him. Quote, they got married soon after, end quote, S.H.I.E.L.D. said, adding that Eileen died of epilepsy about 20 years ago. S.H.I.E.L.D. added, quote, he had problems with his lungs and he often, uh, and was often in a wheelchair. He was very poorly for a long time. He was asked to go out to L.A. for the new Star Wars premiere, but he was told he was too ill to travel. Luckily, he did manage to meet George Lucas again when he came to Manchester. And all quotes there, the article does go on to talk a bit more about his role in Star Wars, as well as the other films that he was in as well, including the Goonies... Oh, I read that as the Goonies TV series, but the Goodies TV series, The Elephant Man, Amadeus, Time Bandits, and of course, Labyrinth. I've seen interviews with Kenny Baker. I've seen him not in person, but I've seen him in on the red carpet and hanging out with his fellow Star Wars folk at the premieres and whatnot, and he seemed like he was an absolutely delightful man. Highly well-regarded and well-spoken of. Uh, it's just sad to see people like him pass away, but luckily, again, what they, what they mentioned here in the article here, that he was expected not to live past puberty and look at it he made it to 81 years old so good for him next up something interesting that i think i think matt i think matt will find this pretty interesting here uh i know i did from yahoomovies.com or actually it's just yahoo.com slash movies so the yahoo movies section of yahoo eddie murphy almost starred in a star trek movie Matt, before I get into this article here written by Brian Kerr, which Star Trek movie would you most like, would you think Eddie Murphy would have been in? Do you have an idea of which one you think he would have fit in perfectly? Four. Four? The Voyage Home. The Voyage Home. What makes you say that? Uh, because it would have been easy for him to reference pop culture immediately of that time and be funny in that time. Um... And also, he could be um, someone who came back along with the chick who comes back with the, the the marine biologist who comes back with the whales. So I would say that would be a real easy one. 
On 50 Years of Star Trek, we learn that Eddie Murphy almost had a starring role in the 1986 film Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. And according to the film's co-writer, Nicholas Mayer... Are you serious? Did I get it right? You got it right. Oh my god, yes! <laughs> <laughs> and according to the film's co-writer, Nicholas Mayer, it almost happened. He said, quote, They had a script written tailor-made to star... Not feature, but to star Eddie Murphy, who was Paramount's other big star at the time, end quote, he said. Mayer went on to say that, quote, Paramount didn't like the idea of putting all their golden eggs in one basket. Eddie Murphy and the Star Trek people, end quote, so instead of starring in Star Trek four the same year, Murphy starred in the film The Golden Child. Perhaps on the next 50 years of Star Trek, there will have been another opportunity for Murphy to play a role in a Star Trek film. We'd love to see Star Trek another 48 hours in space. Yeah, that was a very short article. Personally, I would not... I, I mean, you, we've had famous people in Star Trek movies. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was in, a star, in multiple Star Trek movies. Uh, Kim Cattrall was in... One Star Trek movie or two Star Trek movies? I can't remember. I think just one. And a couple other famous, well-known people have been in Star Trek movies. But nobody as specific as Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy is known specifically for his comedic talent. And at this time, he was in his prime, doing 48 Hours, doing, you know, Beverly Hills Cop and all that stuff. And I just really couldn't see him molding well with the Star Trek crew, including if they're trying to show the differences of of culture, of time, between, uh, you know, the Federation of the future and San Francisco of the late 80s. That would have just been, I, I think, incredibly hokey. And I think it also would have dated the movie because the movie is incredibly nuanced for its time. And it holds up incredibly well. I mean, there's not a whole lot about the movie other than the city's appearance, other than the special effects, other than the cars and some of the lingo and whatnot that actually date the movie. And I think, you know, I think it would have been a bad idea for Eddie Murphy to have been in it. Do you think, do you agree, or do you think it would have been fun to have seen Eddie Murphy play a role? Okay. Because it sounds like he would have been somebody big. Well, you said that he turned it down, or it was it basically ended up falling through, and he he did The Golden Child instead? Yeah. Yeah, he probably should have done Star Trek. <laughs> because, I mean, Golden Child is widely re re referred to as one of the worst Eddie Murphy films, and one of the worst movies of the 80s. So... I mean, it's no Pluto Nash, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I would have liked to have seen it. It. it I, I truly don't believe it could have been any worse than The Golden Child. But I guess this is coming from, you know, The Voyage Home being one of the all-time best Star Trek movies. That I, I'd hate to see anything potentially, you know, dull it down or anything like that. But who knows? Who knows? Fair enough. All right. Well, let's see here. I've got, um, let's see here. Do, 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 do. All right. Two, another two quick, quickies. We've got some quickies here for you. Best 30 seconds of my life. That's, that's one of the lines from the, from the 2011 hit for the Lonely Island. I just had sex. So if you're feeling froggy, go check that out. It's pretty funny. Anyway, from UPI.com by way of Karen Butler. New Narnia movie, The Silver Chair. 
is in the works. The Silver Chair, the fourth adventure in the Chronicles of Narnia film franchise, has officially been greenlit. No casting has been announced, but David McGee, who penned Life of Pi and Finding Neverland, is adapting C.S. Lewis's classic fantasy novel for the big screen. Earlier chapters in the film series, which mixes live action and animation, featured James McAvoy, Tilda Swinton, and Ben Barnes, as well as the voice talents of Eddie Izzard, Rupert Everett, and Liam Neeson. The next installment will be financed by TriStar Pictures, E1, and the Mark Gordon Company with Sony and E1 Distributing. Uh, it will follow 2005's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 2008's Prince Caspian, and 2010's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, it says that Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham, will be among the sequel's producers. What do you think there, Tim? Uh, there's uh, some quotes here that follow that up, so please check that out at upi.com. Uh, are, are you thinking that six years is too long to continue this? Or do you think that given the way that the seven books kind of rotate, like all of the characters are still kind of there, but once you switch over to silver chair, it's a, a slightly different story narrative. And it's a new quite... cast, right? Like it's new. Basically. Yeah. Gonna... It's basically new care. Like the existing, the existing kids and, and the group and Aslan and, and the, and you know, uh, can't remember all the fucking Lucy and all them sh- those kids um, are still in the background, but they don't have anything to do with the story anymore. So, do you think that this is a nice break, a, a new segue, or do you think that they should just leave it? Totally, I'm down with anything that doesn't require a reboot, a full-on reboot. Uh, I was reading something, they they were calling this a reboot of the franchise, and as I was doing some digging, I'm not familiar with the books. I've seen the first two movies, I missed the last one. And I thought they were actually going through and remaking, you know, the, the entire series. And so it was kind of bugging me. And then when I read it, I realized in Wikipedia search, the books, I realized, oh wait, this takes place many years after the previous book, and it features, like, it, the core characters are different, other than the Narnia animal creature people or whatever. So I think it's cool. I mean, I think this is a good way. There's obviously a fan base, uh, a rather large fan base, and if it's done right and in a different style, I think it could kind of capture the the magic that the first one had back in, what, 2004, five, five whenever it came out? Mm-hmm. Right on. Cool. All right. Well, then, uh, just wrap up this next little segment here, uh, or the next little section of quickie news from comicbook.com by way of Jamie Lovett. Aquaman movie villain revealed. Yes, you heard that right. The King of Atlantis is going to have his hands full in his first solo DC Films movie. Aquaman, played by Jason Momoa, will square off against his arch-nemesis, Black Manta, in the upcoming Warner Brothers tentpole currently slated for a 2018 release. Black Manta was created in the pages of DC Comics' Aquaman in 1967. The character has gone through several revamps in terms of origin and continuity. The most recent version, uh, introduced as part of DC's New 52, presents Black Manta as an assassin who holds a grudge for the death of his father against Aquaman. Aquaman did, in fact, accidentally murder Black Manta's father while seeking retribution for a murder that Manta committed. Yeah. What do you think there, Tim? Are you uh, at all familiar with the universe of Aquaman and everything? Not at all. Ah, well, I think this will be pretty cool because um, Black Manta is—I don't want to say—he's—he's—he's—he's he's, he's, for me in terms of theming, he's kind of Joker-esque, just because he's 
truly like the diametric opposite um, in terms of his abilities and everything when it comes to Aquaman. Uh, so I think I think that they've they've picked a good character as far as it goes, and I'm really glad that they're trying to really give Aquaman a chance because people are always like. Oh, wow, so he talks to dolphins. Who gives a shit, right? The thing is, is what people don't realize is that Aquaman is, like, kind of, like, half to, say, three-quarters of Superman on the land, right? But he, like, flat-out owns Superman in the water. So I think it's, I think there's a really cool way to make Aquaman badass. Not to mention we know so little about the ocean in real life um, that there's plenty of stuff that you can do that won't seem like, ugh. and they have a nice excuse to use CGI that will have buy-in because it's underwater. Yay. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to this one. Anyway, maybe it'll get more people out swimming. <laughs> it'll, un- it'll undo all that damage that jaws did. back yeah. in the Like how day. Pokemon go got, kids out walking walking around their neighborhoods exactly anyway what else you got for you sir all right from the guardian.com fox set to pay out to unpaid interns after reaching settlement on black swan case this is me talking not the article here interns get the shit end of the stick because they do a lot of the grunt work that nobody else wants to do yet they're doing it for experience Not just Fox, but multiple studios over the years have taken advantage of interns. And uh, we've talked months ago, I think in February, uh, either you or I, I think it was me, uh, I brought up an article about, was it Paramount? It might have been Paramount. or No, I guess it was Fox. About these interns working on whatever movie, a big budget franchise movie. It might have been Transformers. And they had to sit in their cars for like eight to ten hours Without any, they didn't get any permission to go to the bathroom or to eat or any. They had to eat in their car, and they had to they had to eat the food that they were brought, so they didn't get, even get to enjoy craft services. No bathroom breaks. So they basically crapped and pissed in their car, you know. And it, you know they had to use whatever bottles and boxes they had near them, or they just had to go in their pants. And it's just not the gross stuff like that. But when you're not getting paid to do stuff, especially in the movie industry. A lot of people don't realize, a lot of interns don't realize that the mo- the industry under- knows that there are so there are hundreds, there are thousands of people, there are thousands of young people right out of high school, right out of college that come to L.A. or to Atlanta or uh, New York that'll take any type of intern job because they want to be in the movie industry. They want to do something. They want to they want to they want to pay their dues and become an actor, become a director, or become a department head, and so they will do anything. Well, the studios know this, and they take advantage of it. So luckily, back to the article, Fox set to pay out to unpaid interns after reaching settlement on Black Swan case. This is great, and I'm happy to share this with you. Reports suggest Landmark five-year legal battle is set to conclude with media giant reimbursing those who have undertaken unpaid work at the company since as far back as 2005, so a whopping 11 years ago. The two interns who won a Landmark case against Fox 
film studio, after working unpaid on the set of Black Swan, have succeeded in their five-year campaign to push the studio into paying those who had undertaken unpaid work experience at the company, according to Deadline. Fox, which lost and then appealed a landmark ruling in a lawsuit filed by former interns Alexander Footman and Eric Glatt in 2013, has decided to settle rather than take the case back to court. The settlement is yet to be approved by a judge, but it would see everyone who interned for free at Fox Entertainment Group, Fox Film Entertainment, Fox Networks Group, and Fox Interactive Media in the first nine months of 2010 as well as certain people who worked unpaid in their New York and California offices between 2005 and 2010, receive about 495 bucks each. Footman and Glatt would receive $7,500 and $6,000, respectively, while Eden Antalk, another plaintiff who joined them in 2012, would get 3500 bucks. As Deadline notes, their lawyers will have made approximately $220,000 in fees... Wow. By the time the settlement is agreed, Black Swan released in 2010 took $330 million at the global box office. Footman and Glatz first sued Fox Searchlight in 2010 after claiming that the studio was breaking U.S. law by requiring interns to perform tasks that had little or no educational value for no financial gain. At the time, the company defended themselves by saying the pair had been working for Aronofsky's production company and the lawsuit was meritless. The plaintiffs expanded their suit to cover all internships at parent company 20th Century Fox 2012. In 2013, federal judge William Polly sided with them, agreeing that the work they had been tasked with should have been carried out by paid employees. Fox appealed, but it seems to have now decided to settle. And the article goes on from there. And that's what you see now for all you youngins. Uh, or whoever who want to come out to L.A. or New York or Atlanta to be in the movie industry, to be in the entertainment industry, you'll notice that a lot of these jobs that have, would have gone to interns are now like internships for school. And that's how they're kind of going under the door, you know, I guess. They will give you college credit because you're doing all this work. They're still not going to pay you, so they're just going to give you an internship. And that's why whenever I first moved out here, it was difficult for me to find certain jobs because normally you would come out back in the early 2000s, 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s. Ever since the movie industry first became the movie industry, you could just come in and be, you know, work in the prop house, work in uh, the set building department. And eventually you would be able to work yourself, work your way up. Well, you can't do that now because all that bitch work now becomes an internship and goes towards college credit. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Do you think uh, do you think uh, college credit is enough for you know these kids to work on movies, or do you think it's you know depending on the work, it's reasonable? I think that I think internships, um, unpaid internships, are bullshit. I think it's exactly what you said. It's just a way to take advantage of people who desperately need any kind of experience. <clears throat> and um, just a way to give people the shit work without having to pay for it, pay them for it. I think I think it's dumb. So that's my take on any unpaid internship. There you have it. All right. I'll, I'm I just due to time. I'm I'll, I'll go ahead and call my news at where I left off. Um, there. Did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, throw out into the news sphere, sir? 
Yes. The new popular type of movie documentaries that have been coming out the, the last couple years are, are those movies or those documentaries about movies that were never made. Uh, we talked about Superman Lives, I think it was called. The Tim Burton Superman movie with Nicolas Cage as Clark Kent. That was going to come out some years ago. We watched and reviewed that documentary. There's another documentary about Dune, Jodorowsky's Dune. That came out this past year. And there was another one about... Uh, oh, crap. I, I forget the name of it. But we talked about it last year, around Halloween time, I think. About Dr. Doctor Something-something. The guy who uh, makes people into animals, I guess. Doctors... Uh, I can't think of it. But anyways, those type of documentaries are becoming uh, more and more popular. Including in the movie Geek world this time around though the the newest the latest documentary about a film is actually a film that was made but it was never released and this film in particular is the roger corman fantastic four from the early 90s via ew.com entertainment weekly documentary about never released fantastic four movie coming later this year written by clark collis uh, and it says that if you learned there was a documentary named Doomed and that it was about a Fantastic Four film, you might well conclude the movie in question was last year's famously troubled Miles Teller starring reboot. But no, writer-director Marty Langford's doc actually concerns a 1994 adaption that was produced by Roger Corman but never actually released for reasons Langford explores in his film. It was announced over the weekend that Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, has been acquired for distribution by Uncorked Entertainment and will be released on VOD October 11th and on DVD December 20th. Keep in mind, you can go on YouTube and various other websites, hint, hint, and maybe possibly watch Fantastic Four. But if you don't want to torture yourself, or if you don't have an endless supply of marijuana on hand... Look forward to the doc, because I guarantee you, based on the trailer, it's going to be something that will be pretty damn entertaining. Uh, and lastly, for my news and the news in general, I find this very interesting. And once I started thinking about this particular thing, I realized how true this rings. Via thehollywoodreporter.com, why Suicide Squad is the spiritual sequel to Batman and Robin. Yes, that is right. Uh, this is an article written by Aaron Couch. Earlier this week, cartoonist Matthew Inham joked that Suicide Squad was actually the missing third chapter in Joel Schumacher's uncompleted trilogy of 90s Batman movies. It wasn't meant as a compliment, but rather a comment on some of Suicide Squad's not-so-great qualities. In a tweet... Matthew Inham said, just saw the third movie in this trilogy. It was awesome. And of course, it was the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Back in 97, Schumacher was indeed planning a third installment to follow up Batman Forever in 95 and the much-mocked Batman and Robin in 97, saying, quote, it was going to be very dark, end quote. Schumacher told Heat Vision last year for an oral history of Batman Forever, that film never came to be as Batman and Robin was instantly rejected by fans and critics. It was so toxic that Warner Brothers put the Dark Knight on ice for years. No, that is not a Mr. Freeze pun, with the studio rotating through scripts and directors before ultimately handing the reins to Christopher Nolan for Batman Begins in 2005. 
like the best parts of Suicide Squad, which most agree are in the first act, and its flashback scenes. Oh, well, this is according to Heat Vision here. Schumacher's Batman films were splashy, colorful, and loud. The director was obsessed with making his films look like a comic book panel brought to life, and he pushed those who worked for him to make that vision a reality. Schumacher's two Batman films are among the most divisive in comic book history, but two decades later, they are eminently watchable. Even Batman and Robin, with its 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, falls into that elusive, so bad, it's good category. And that brings us to Suicide Squad. The brief scenes featuring Batman, the Joker, and Harley Quinn give the sense that there's a very comic booky Batman film hidden within it. On set, the Joker scenes were treated like they were a separate movie, and in many ways, its colorful yet dark tones feel like a modern update on Schumacher that is meant to be a compliment. Uh, end all quotes there. Again, the article goes into more detail about, uh, I guess, making comparisons to the Schumacher movies, not only just the co- uh, the colors, but even with Batman being pissed off that Harley Quinn and the Joker killed off Robin, they're making comparisons with Chris O'Donnell's Robin and Batman Returns and, or not Batman Returns, in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and... Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting, and they also do like side by side stills of color comparisons from Batman Returns and from Suicide Squad. So it's pretty interesting. Matt, what do you think? In some weird way, can you see this being a spiritual successor to Batman and Robin? Mm, no, mainly because despite the flaws, the serious serious flaws in this movie. Um, that is Suicide Squad. At no point do people actually try and use a Suicide Squad credit card, nor do they click their fucking heels together and have ice skates pop out of their goddamn shoes. Um, because they understood that, at least, like I've been, like I've said a million times before, that the style was important and they got the style right. Batman and Robin did not get the style right at all. They took it way too far, and it was completely ridiculous and overboard. And, <sighs> yeah, no, no. I, I I disagree with that assessment, sir. And that's my news. All right, folks. Well, without further ado, we will go directly into... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim will be discussing the Deadspin article by Sean Raviv, The Hateful Life and Spiteful Death of the Man Who Was Vigo the Carpathian. And now, Discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes, yes. Thank you, Weird Announcer Dude. It's been far too long since we've heard your beautiful, yet strangely high-pitched voice. As was just referenced, The Hateful Life and Spiteful Death of the Man Who Was Vigo the Carpathian. Again, this is brought to us uh, by Sean Revive over at Deadspin.com. And it begins as such. 
You've seen a painting of Norbert Group. A heavy, creased brow and shoulder-length hair framing a frightening scowl. The massive work hung in the fictional Manhattan Museum of Art in Ghostbusters 2. When the medieval sorcerer pictured within the painting begins to physically manifest, it is on the Ghostbusters to rally the city's positive emotions and trap him back in the painting forever. Most people will only ever know Norbert Group as Vigo the Carpathian, but... Norbert Group, a Nazi soldier's son, boxer, professional wrestler, failed actor, criminal, and miserable human being who was never so happy as when he could make someone hate him, was once a man so beautiful that other men wanted to paint him. Yeah, that is how this article starts. This is a very, very compelling article about a guy who really experienced life um in some of the most tragic of ways and yet at the same time in some of the most amazing ways and it's just that instead of letting the amazingness of his life triumph he let the tragedy of his life define him and make him uh, or mold him rather into the type of person who would do things like rape his stepmother um and in which case offspring was produced so um it would make someone like that and yet at the same time someone that people loved to be around who was charismatic and had this amazing physique and ability to be a huge bodybuilder um, someone who did have a Nazi soldier for a father, and yet his father, it's not because he was into the Nazi, it was because he was, he was ostensibly drafted, and yet that defined his dad. But his dad was also equally amazing in his own right. Um, they both turned to boxing, and, and they were both just these, you know, amazing physique-builded dudes and stuff and yet they were both troubled although his dad ended up being a slightly better person um it's just a it is an incredibly intriguing story and not necessarily one that I would say is uplifting or glorifying uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but something that's certainly important nonetheless, because you can see just exactly how the pursuit of fame can twist someone who's already been twisted by life. Uh, what do you think, Tim? Uh, I know that, uh, I initially brought this this article to you, gosh, a little over a month ago now. So what are your thoughts on this particular article? Very depressing. Very troubling. I guess taking a different look at it, I guess in my end I was looking at it like... Because I I don't know, I guess I couldn't really connect with the guy in any way other than really only ever seeing him in Ghostbusters 2. But then also just kind of realizing... You look at these actors, they could be a bit actor like him, at least in the U.S., or they could be somebody like Robert Downey Jr. or Matthew Broderick or Terrence Howard, and you have no idea, you know, anything about their past, or you don't realize how crazy their past was. 
um, Robert Downey Jr., you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, being arrested multiple times for DWI. I don't know if he's, I'm sure he's received DWIs, I don't know. Matthew Broderick hit somebody in Italy or in Europe or something. He killed a mother and a daughter or something like that in a car wreck. Terrence Howard beat up his wife, you know? So you hear about this stuff all the time, but I don't know. You just never really hear anything as bizarre as V. I forget his name. I'm just going to call him Vigo the Carpathian, I guess. Cause it, even hearing that description, it's like, yeah, he sounds like a Vigo the Carpathian. Well, his name is Norbert Group. Uh, you could go as close to say groupie, um, but uh, he didn't even really like that because of what a groupie is, and he would think that people would make fun of him. I mean, the guy was just literally... I, I, and here's the thing. This is why I say it's intriguing um, and, and fascinating. I, and, and for me, it was a captivating read. Not because it isn't depressing, because it is a very, in and of itself, it is a very depressing story. But there are still lessons that you can take from it. And, I mean, we're talking about a guy whose dad, because of his experiences growing up and being drafted into the into the Nazis and carried that shame and that horror with him, he, he turned to drink. And his wife left him um, and couldn't bear to look at her son because of that tie to her ex-husband and then his stepmother was incredibly cruel to him meanwhile all he wanted to do was be like dad so dad trains him in boxing right so now norbert is trying to be a boxer and be famous like his or you know be something and yet nothing ever works out for this poor bastard and he has a he had a wrestling career with his dad um he had a boxing career and, um, I mean, there were lots of, yeah, just lots of different things. And also the, uh, Digstown, I think with, with James Woods and Lewis Gossett Jr. Right. Um, he was in that too. He played the box, he played the boxer that got drugged. Um, so I don't know. I just think that there's so many fascinating, um, parts to this guy's life and yes it's tragic i i don't want to underscore the fact that this is a tragic story it is depressing but there's just so many different things out there i mean was there any particular part that spoke to you more than more than anything else i don't know i think the one thing that really got me was his father being a nazi and how that really affected him i mean i mean it's crazy i'm going through the pictures again he's here standing with like arnold schwarzenegger well, actually, that's uh, Richard. That's his dad on the right-hand side of Arnold Schwarzenegger in this particular article. And again, guys, we hope you're following along. Deadspin.com. Hateful life, spiteful death of the man who was Vigo the Carpathian. And, I mean, you can look at these pictures, and you can see just where this guy's physique and everything came from. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, it was, I mean, just completely ridiculous. Um, but still, I mean, like he had a sister, ultimately he ended up with a sister that it was thought, um, could have been also his daughter. Now she claims that she did get a DNA test to prove that he wasn't, that it was actually his father, but he never believed it. It's just, 
You have a guy. I mean, by the end of his life, he literally had nothing. He had nothing. Um, even his own sister was like, okay, I mean, she went from hating this guy to even eventually taking a little bit of pity on this dude. And even in death, this guy totally got back at her because she didn't tell him about his father dying for like a month because they didn't see each other. She was mad or I don't know. Something happened. And so he literally had arrangements in his will, such as it was, so that she would be notified of his death one month after he died as one final little bitch slap because she offended him while he was alive. I'm just like, <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's unreal. Um, what, what, what it, what it was like. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. It's just, like I said, this is a very compelling read. It's very intriguing, truly fascinating. Uh, but like Tim says, I feel ultimately it is, it is depressing, but it's crazy. Don't, don't let tragedy define you, I guess. Yeah, no, exactly. Very interesting article. Right on. Well, I guess, uh, hopefully y'all read it too. We'd love to hear what you thought. Please let us know either by tweeting at us at the SLS cast or sending us an email to the show at slscast.com. And so until next time, this has been Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next time, the bonus segment will be a three squared on back to school movies. Matt and Tim will talk about their picks for their three favorite back to school movies. Thanks again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. Back to school, back to school. Right. Adam, do you remember that? Do you remember the uh, Adam was Sandler. it Happy Gilmore? Yeah. I guess that would have back to be it. Because that's the one where he goes back to school. That that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, is it Billy Madison? Or Billy Madison, yeah. Billy yeah, Madison, yeah. yeah. Billy Madison's one where he goes back to school. Happy Gilmore is the is the golf one. So anyway, all right. Well, so you heard it there. Next week we're gonna be doing a three squared on uh back to school movies. And without further ado, I believe it is time for the actual movies, is it not, sir? Movie it up, man. All right, folks. Then here we go. It's the movie. <laughs> This week's movies are Florence Foster Jenkins and Pete's Dragon. Where do you want to start there, sir? Ooh, uh, how about uh, Florence Foster? All right, Florence Foster Jenkins is a 2016 British-French biographical dramedy uh, directed by Stephen Frears and written by Nicholas Martin. Uh, it stars Meryl Streep, Hugh Grant, Simon Hellberg, Rebecca Ferguson, and Nina Arianda, among a few other people in the cast. And of course, this follows Florence Foster Jenkins as she uh, gains notoriety for her voice and puts on her crowning achievement of a concert at Carnegie Hall. What's interesting to note is that I have known about uh, Florence Foster Jenkins for years now, and her story has always been so amazing. But the thing was, one of the things that the movie I really wish would have would have done is shown just how much 
in control Florence was over her own destiny. You see a lot of maneuvering by her quote-unquote husband, played by Hugh Grant, who does a phenomenal job, by the way. I thought that he truly embodied a loving husband who, despite his flaws as a human, um, did truly care about the well-being of Florence. But you kind of see the guidance happening from uh, from the back end, and you just see this exuberance that is Florence Foster Jenkins, who uh, just wants to has, has, just wants to fulfill her dream. And the thing is, is that in real life, she was she really was a lot more in control than people thought. Um, so because of that. I can't give the movie five stars. And I'm not going to go into it any further so that we can stick to our new format. But um, but I will say that, um, albeit a little bit formulaic, the performances were really, really good, and the story is very, very uplifting. I would give this one four stars. Uh, we can go into finer points momentarily. What do you got there, Tim? You know, I think if you are a fan of Stephen Freer's movies, he's done a lot of great movies. He directed High Fidelity. He did The Queen with Helen Mirren. He did Dangerous Liaisons. And he did Philomena in 2013. And actually, we covered a Stephen Freer's movie a couple months ago. He did The Program, The Cancer Balls. Uh, the Cancer Ball movie guy. The Bicycle Cancer Ball dude. The Lion can Lance Armstrong. Yeah, Lance Armstrong. <laughs> he did the Lance Armstrong movie. So if you like his type of movies, they're not... I don't want to say safe, because that kind of sounds bad. The well-made films, just well-made movies, to which whenever you leave, you will be uh, incredibly entertained, then this will not let you down. You have great performances virtually all around. In fact... My big concern was one of the characters, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, there's great humor. There's great cinematography. I loved how the movie was shot. It has, like, this great Technicolor look to it. So it's very old-fashioned. And on top of it, this movie is Hugh Grant's movie just as much as it is Meryl Streep's movie. This movie would not have been the same without... Hugh Grant, and it would not have been the same, and, and also um, Florence Foster Jenkins, I don't think would have been the same without St. Clair Bayfield, her husband. And I just really loved how both of those aspects really worked in the movie, because there's no bad people, they're not bad folk, there's not a bad guy, it's a movie with good intentions that deserves to be seen and enjoyed. So I give this one, despite all the, you know, a couple issues that I have with it, I do give it four stars as well. I highly recommend it. Everyone out there, I think, should enjoy it, unless you, you, unless you really like to be super depressed <laughs> or uh, held down by clunky storytelling. But this is just a nicely made movie that does like to play safe, I should say. So four out of five. All right, well, okay, so then kind of spinning off of that, that's going to actually lead back into what my biggest problem with the movie was. It's not that, I don't, I didn't feel that it was, that, that it was trying to play it safe so much as that it was trying to shift the focus 
to allow Hugh Grant's character to be more, I don't know, omniscient, I guess, in terms of directing uh, Meryl Streep, or at least, I'm sorry, St. Clair Bayfield for Florence Foster Jenkins. Again, uh, you, I, I, I feel you're totally on by saying this is just as much Hugh Grant's movie as it is Meryl Streep's movie. Uh, I thought Simon Helberg did a good job too, except I'm not really sure why they cast him to play Cosme McMoon because um, Cosme McMoon, I think, was Hispanic, I'm pretty sure. So, uh, whatever. But um, Florence Foster Jenkins, when she would do her performances and whatnot um, in real life, and this is, again, this is where we get into the spoilers, guys. Um, she controlled access to any performance she ever gave. Okay? So when she would do things like have, like she would actually have a performance and it would be a true concert, she would control the tickets so that nobody could ever give her a true review because no press was ever invited. So these, she would always do them for her little clubs, or she'd do them for private party friends and stuff like that. And she would advertise them somewhat, but they would never ever be in the form or fashion of someone being able to come and truly critique her. Um, which leads you to believe that she knew her limitations. It's just that she believed that she was better than what her detractors as she would call them uh would do it and i think that that would have been something that would have been a much better way to attract how that that was going to work out um she actually relented her and, and again because it all leads up to allowing saint Clair bayfield again hugh grant to have a much larger role in the movie um, but it's because of the way they told the story. It's not that he did a bad job. And again, he's got his flaws too. He's got his own problems and stuff, uh, as evidenced by Rebecca Ferguson, uh, to begin with, who plays Kathleen, uh, Weatherly. Now, um, she literally, she never wanted to do Carnegie Hall. She actually relented to do Carnegie Hall because she knew, she knew that she couldn't control the tickets because it was a public venue. So, she was actually quite, in real life, quite devastated by all of the negative press that she got, despite how happy she made people. Because she did make people happy with the way that she sang, and she didn't give a shit that she couldn't sing well. But because she allowed herself, she built herself up in her own head and controlled her, and controlled her access for so long, I think it, you know, hurt her. Um, and I think that that would have been an equally, if not more so compelling movie to tell and, and a better way to tell that story instead of having it built around Hugh Grant kind of uh, assisting her and making things happen for her. And again, she does, she is a strong character. Meryl Streep does portray her as a strong, she's not helpless or anything like that. Um, it's just that she's kind of, um, you know, she kind of opens up and you find that she's much deeper, you know, as someone who used to play the piano and she, you know, did things. She wasn't just this goofy heiress and stuff. Um, so I don't want to try and detract from that. I just think that you sometimes the story, the real life story is good enough. Um, 
But on the flip side of that, without it, we wouldn't have got such a great performance out of Hugh Grant. So I guess there's that, too. I don't know, Tim. What are you thinking on that? It might actually possibly garner him a nomination, an Academy Award nomination, finally. Which I'd be surprised if he doesn't. I mean, obviously we haven't seen all the movies that, you know, have come out this year yet. Uh, I'd be surprised if he doesn't at least get like a BAFTA nomination or something because he did very good. I mean, he was he was like it's. I think it's difficult to portray a character specifically like you know, kind of like his who he is a loving husband. He loves her, but due to her illness, due to her her disease, they can never. They were never able to have a sexual relationship. It's true. And, and they were so, also never really married, by the way. Oh, really? Really. Because um, the dude who gave her syphilis um, was her first husband. Oh, and he wouldn't divorce her or something? Oh, no. Well, she says that she got a divorce, but she could never she could never provide paperwork that would prove that she got the divorce. So she basically cohabitated with Mr. Clayfield. Yeah, and then so he I'm was sorry, able Mayfield. to... Yeah, so like he bought her or she bought him a in a flat an apartment you know somewhere else in the city and he ends up having a girlfriend who lives with him and yet every morning he wakes up and he provides Florence with breakfast and he spends the days with her he tucks her in at night he you know he serenades her with monologues from you know from Hamlet or whatever Shakespearean play he is devoted to her but yet he is you know, and but yet he's living this 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 separate life, and I really don't know. I mean, I would like to know more about uh, you know what actually happened if it was more conflicting than it was portrayed or not. But how he handled it was great because you could just tell that he, if he had the chance, he would want to spend all of his time with Florence. You know, he wants to have kids with her, and he just really wanted that. And that's what makes that one moment, that one scene when she goes, I'm sorry, I, I wish I could have given you a child. If I didn't have this disease, I could have given you a family. We could have had a family and been together. It's a very incredibly touching moment. And then you fast forward again, major spoiler alert here. At the end of the movie, right before she passes away pretty much, she asks him to sleep with her because he, you know, he goes back to his other apartment. And he decides, you know, he agrees to sleep with her because she asked him. And you knew. It's not like he, you know, it was out of obligation or anything. You just knew that he would have done it at any moment, at any time that she asked him to. And it's just like a wonderful character, a wonderful performance. And it just really came across on screen. And I just really, I, I loved it. I think that was really one of the most touching moments I've seen in a movie in quite some time, in a newer movie in quite some time. I agree with you, Matt. Some of the some of the issues that you took with the movie, I definitely agree. But one character, the character that annoyed me, was the character of Cosme McMoon. I really didn't care for him too much, the performance at least. It just seemed like he was constantly uh, on the verge of something. He sounded like he was constantly on the verge of something. He was either on the verge of hysterics, he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown... Or he was on the verge of giddiness. And his character never changed throughout the movie. There are these moments when he's playing at Carnegie Hall. And you can tell like, oh, it's, you know, he achieved something. You know, he he achieved being able to play at Carnegie Hall. After that scene is over and he's with 
um, St. Clair with Hugh Grant's character, he's back to his giddiness. He's back to his on the verge of, you know, making all those noise. And it was difficult for me to not only believe the character or but to see the character actually progress in some way. And once he did get to, you know, a certain feeling or a certain sense of accomplishment or giddiness of nervousness, it was hard to actually believe it because it all came from the same place virtually. So that's pretty much it. It's still a very good movie and I definitely recommend it to all you folks out there that just want to go to the movie theater to be entertained by a quality movie. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, well, that leaves us with 2016's Pete's Dragon. Yes, the fantasy adventure drama film is directed by David Lowry, uh, and it stars Bryce Dallas Howard, Oaks Fegley, Went, uh, Wes Bentley, Carl Urban, Una Lawrence, and Robert Redford. This is a complete reimagining of the earlier film, of the 1977 film, and incidentally, the film actually takes place in the late 70s, early 80s. And I think that's something that is really telling about being able to pull off the way that they tell this story. Because we are in a small town of Millhaven, and there's a, 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 there's a tale of the Millhaven dragon that lives out in the woods and, uh, you know, it was separated from its dragon family and everything, right? And we start off and we have a boy who is riding along with his parents. There's a car accident and he finds himself the sole survivor where he is subsequently taken in by said dragon. Um, and the boy is Pete and he, of course, names his dragon Elliot. Now, I'm going to stop there because, you know, don't want to get into any spoilers at this point. Just the rest of the movie is, of course, him being found out by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's character um, and the subsequent chain of events that causes him to be um, more or less kind of reintegrated into society. And then, of course, um, what would happen if you found a dragon, right? I thought this movie was absolutely stunning i actually saw this movie in 3d um i i thought the 3d was very very well done but not something that was required so if you enjoy 3d movies then please go see this in 3d um if you're one who doesn't really feel the need you won't be really missing anything so uh that's a take it or leave it in terms of your your call but I thought the movie was gorgeous. The cinematography was absolutely wonderful. And I really enjoyed the fact that they set it in a time period when it allows you to expand your uh, suspension of disbelief because there's no satellites. There's no, there's no technology. There's nothing there that would say, well, you wouldn't be able to. Surely you'd find a dragon in the woods, you know. Um, and so it allows you to be able to have that experience and relax that about your brain as you enjoy the movie. The only detractable parts for me are two specific parts. Um, and I don't mean parts in terms of scenes in the movie, but parts in terms of character style and portrayal. 
because you've got some pretty damn heavy hitters here. You've got Bryce Dallas Howard, you've got Wes Bentley, Carl Urban, Robert Redford, seriously. Even Una Lawrence has been good. Oaks Fegley, who plays Pete, um, he's a great up-and-comer as well. So, I mean, everybody's a heavy hitter. And the thing is, is that because you have such good actors and actresses here that and, and yet everybody is kind of playing a secondary role as as they should because this this movie's called Pete's Dragon right so this is about Pete and Elliot but when you have such strong characters played by or I'm sorry such such stereotypical characters for this type of story played by such strong actors and actresses, you find yourself wanting a little bit more from those characters because you know those actors and actresses can do more. And that's not a fault of the actors or actresses. It's not even a fault of the story or the director. I think it's just a fault of the way that the characters themselves are utilized in this particular type of story. Um, and so you just kind of feel like, oh, give us a little more, give us a little more, um, not just moving the plot forward, but give us a little more. The other side of that is you've got this particular line that gets crossed, and I will only say that it involves howling, okay, um, because I don't want to spoil anything for the movie. And when you do something that animalistic as a character – you have to be very careful because there's a very fine line where you ham it up and even when it's meant to be not goofy, you find it being goofy. And this one literally like wobbled on that line. There are certain times when you see the carrot, you see uh, Pete and, uh, Elliot doing the howling thing that they do and it's like hmm you want you kind of like you get it but at the same time it's kind of breaking that illusion so for those two reasons I give this one 4.25 out of 5 it's still a fantastic movie but it just needed a little bit more it either needed some it needed not as strong actors to maintain secondary characters in a more believable way um or it needed to oomph up the story more so that it could better utilize those actors and actresses and i think that in terms of certain animalistic behaviors that are understandable within the context of the film i'm not trying to dog that in any way um i think that they wobbled on that line they didn't fall into ham territory, um, but they wobbled when they rode that line. So 4.25, great movie, fantastic movie for the kids, um, amazing CGI, so 4.25. What do you got there, Tim? Peach Dragon is a very entertaining movie. If I hear another person call it Spielbergian again, I might have to slap them, because you can make the same kind of correlations to some Spielberg movie, but this movie is special in of itself. It's important that the movie was shot, or not shot, but it was important that the movie was based in the 70s. Like what Matt said, it was a simpler time when certain things can be or could be overlooked, uh, like a giant 
dragon flying around or in a jungle or not a jungle but in the forest kind of splashing splashing around in a ravine for example um the performances are top notch i thought the cast was stellar i thought it was smart hiring david lowry we were talking about indie directors being hired for certain movies but they're they weren't allowed to really bring their particular flavor to these films like David Ayer with Suicide Squad. Well, David Lowry, who directed Peach Dragon, directed Anthem Body Saints from 2013. He did Upstream Color, which Matt and I both hated <laughs> a couple years ago. And a number of, uh, a number of other uh, short films as well as indie films. Not a whole lot, though, but he definitely has quite the credits here, uh, both in uh, the director's seat, writer's seat, producer seat, editor's seat, cinematographer, uh, editorial uh, department, sound department, just all this stuff. Check out his IMD page. Uh, he, this guy knows his stuff. In this movie, due to him having such an indie background, God, he brought so much to this movie that I don't think certain big directors couldn't even... Uh, achieve it's a simple movie it's a simple movie that needed needed to have been based in the 70s in the simpler time and it worked beautifully it had wonderful nuances wonderful nuances and wonderful depth both character and story depth that i was not expecting I knew that this movie was supposed to be good, but I didn't realize how good, especially after rewatching the 19s. When did it come out? The uh, 1977's Pete Dragon, <laughs> where that story is fucking dark. Watch it again if you haven't seen it in a while. Go back and watch it, 1977's Pete's Dragon, and tell me that the shit is not dark. Especially the opening song where his foster parents and brothers are trying to basically look for him and kill him. And they're singing about all the different ways they're going to brutally torture this poor child. It's not like that. This movie has wonderful moments, and the biggest flaw that it has... And this is why I'm giving it a 3.75 out of 5, teetering between a 4 and a 3.5, leaning more to a 3.5, was that all of the emotional aspects, the many emotional aspects, felt either restrained or it lacked the follow-through. I couldn't tell if uh, the director, David Lowry, was experimenting with these deeper elements that you usually don't see in a modern Disney family film like this, but was then taken down a few notches by the studio, which ultimately possibly may, was the reason why the movie and its emotional elements felt more safe, or the movie itself felt more safe. I, I don't know if that was the case or not, but there was a great setup, and I'll get into more of this in spoiler territory, but there was no follow-through. Not just once or twice, but with many of the emotional aspects. And to me, that was a, I mean, that was the biggest issue of the film. Again, wonderfully cast, wonderfully made. I'm not saying don't go see this movie. It's still well worth your time and well worth your money. These are the type of movies that I grew up watching. Movies that had more, whatever, you know, had more of a dramatic, real element to it, even though it might be a fantasy film. Uh, and it's absolutely delightful to watch. So I don't want the 3.75 to come across as 
you know, uh, as as bad, even though anything above a three is still pretty damn good. So right now, that's all I will say. Three point seven five out of five, Peach Dragon for me. Okay. Well, you know what? I in this particular one, um, I'm happy to respond to any of your spoiler stuff. But I I feel like I got the essence out of what I wanted to say without getting into any spoilers. But um, I guess I will say this to clarify the howling thing, um, since we are in spoiler spoiler area. I will simply say this: um, Pete ends up howling for Elliot uh, at two different times in the movie. Um, and one of them is like, kind of like a goodbye kind of moment and everything towards the end of the film. But, uh, both of those instances were very, very heartfelt. And so you kind of, um, so you get the idea, you understand that he's doing it in pain. And of course he's been there since he was five, right? He's 11 now. So he, uh, because it takes place over six years, starts in 1977 and moves to 1983. Um, so of course, while he can talk and he's, you know, somewhat normalized in that regard, he still has animalistic tendencies. He's been hanging out with a dragon since he was five years old. Um, and so that's when I was talking about when they really wobbled on that line, because while I totally understood and I didn't laugh at it or anything, or I didn't find it stupid, it completely broke it. And I was kind of criticizing it like it was not ridicule but close to ridicule and that that's a line you have just got to be so very careful with because it can break immersion and make people go seriously and and it causes you to make fun of it and it and it will ruin that moment and so and there's two of them in there that that happens so um when he gets initially trapped up by the fence it happens um and then when he's like upset because he's gonna have to leave his friend, so that's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah, and I guess what I mean by emotional follow through, for example, the opening of the movie when the parents die, it happens so quick. And I know you don't want to make the children depressed, but you have the setup that is shot so depressingly well. <laughs> like they they got the mood and the feeling spot on for a more adult movie. It just felt like the studio was was saying, "Okay, David, we got to we need a we need to wrap this up. We need to we need to quickly move into the dragon. We need to get into the more lighthearted stuff a little bit." And then even when it did get in or when it does get in the more lighthearted stuff, there's still like this feeling of you know, it, this isn't your typical super fluffy, lighthearted Disney movie. There's more of a real-ish dramatic element to it, which I very much enjoyed. So it was the opening, Pete being t- uh, taken away from Elliot, and then Pete desperately trying to uh, find Elliot. Uh, then there's Elliot getting captured at the end. That doesn't really amount to much. It ends pretty nicely you know like every like especially the, the, the actual ending to the movie it's very nicely packaged and on top of all that other questions were asked there uh, another story element that was brought up story and character element was the grandpa robert redford's character he, it's it's alluded to heavily that he actually knows elliot but did the grandpa actually meet Elliot before? It's never explained, but only hinted at. 
So, uh, I don't know, that's just something that kind of bothered me later on when thinking about the movie. It's still a very good movie, but I really hope these studios really kind of work out the kinks with getting these indie directors on board to either go balls deep and make the movie that they want to make, or just hire any other director that will just make the studio movie. Because this movie is significantly better than any of those other big-budgeted movies directed by uh, indie directors. Though I don't think this one was a big-budget movie. It still felt like the studio was pulling him back a bit. So 3.75 out of 5, again, was my rating. Cool beans. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the movies. And next week's movies are Sausage Party and Kubo and the Two Strings. So another two-movie week, both of them in the theater. Hope you'll stick around and uh, join us for those for next week. And without further ado, I think we are down to the spiel. Are we not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Meryl Streep, I get to say this. I didn't have any confidence in my beauty when I was young. I felt like a character actress, and I still do. Take your cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>